Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and welcome to Next Question. And that same set of double doors opened, and those same two residents came through that set of double doors, along with another doctor that I had never laid eyes on. And they told me that um, she had passed, and there was nothing else that they could do to save her. I just remember the scream that my mother-in-law let off. I remember, you know, her aunt falling to the floor. I remember her brother just yelling. And I just, I'm just looking around at all these people that I love so much and that love Cure so much in so much pain, and I'm just standing there in shock. It's like, no, 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 no. And just insisting that they, that something didn't happen because Literally 12 hours earlier, we walked into this hospital with a woman that not only was in good health, but was in exceptional health. Not only that, I was just talking to her. When she walked away from me, I was holding her hand and I was talking to her. How does this happen? On April 13th, 2016, Charles Johnson and his wife, Kira, became a part of a shameful statistic, America's maternal mortality rate. In the U.S., an estimated two women die every day from pregnancy and childbirth-related causes, and 60% of those deaths could have been prevented. What's scary now is that those numbers don't take the coronavirus into consideration and the effect a pandemic could have on an already fragile maternal health system. The fact is, the situation was bleak long before COVID-19 hit the U.S. in early 2020. Over the past three decades, while the world has drastically reduced its maternal mortality rate, the U.S. is the only developed nation to see its rate go up and go up significantly. The U.S. now has one of the highest mortality rates in the developed world, a fact that was so shocking to me that seemed so incongruous that I set out to understand how this could be possible. And so today, part one of our look into America's maternal mortality crisis And my next question, what's behind this devastating trend? 
To answer that question, we have to go back to Kira's story. We were just over the moon and ecstatic to welcome our first son, Charles. It was just such a tremendous blessing. We'd always talked about having back-to-back boys. You know, the first time around, we talked about all the politically correct stuff. We're not really worried about what gender it is as long as it's a healthy baby. We don't care. But by the time the second one came around, Kira had her mind made up. She was like, I'm a boy's mom. This is where I get in, where I fit in. Kira and Charles were married in 2012. Two years later, they welcomed their first son, Charles V, via C-section in Atlanta. In 2015, a job opportunity moved the young family out to Los Angeles, where they were preparing for the birth of their second son, who they decided to call Langston. We interviewed about, I think, about three or four different OBGYNs, and we had also made the decision very early on that we wanted to deliver at Cedars-Sinai Hospital. It was our understanding that Cedars-Sinai was supposed to be, you know, one of the best places, certainly in the state of California, and it had a reputation of being, you know, one of the best places in the country, particularly in the area of obstetrics and delivery. Beyond a little bit of nausea early on, Kira's second pregnancy passes without incident. She's 39, she's fit, she's healthy, and she has the resources to choose her care. Because Kira had a C-section with her first delivery, her doctor recommends they do the same for the second. She's scheduled for a routine C-section on April 12, 2016, at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in L.A. So we walked in for Langston's delivery for the scheduled C-section at 2 o'clock. And so Langston is born perfectly healthy, 10 fingers, 10 toes, you know, super, super handsome looking just like me. And it's just, we're just overwhelmed with all this just joy and pride of just welcoming this precious gift into our lives. And so shortly after the delivery, uh, they take us back to recovery. Kira's sitting in the bed resting and Langston is there in the little incubator toaster thingy. And as I'm sitting there, I look down by Kira's bedside and I begin to see the catheter, the Foley catheter coming from her bedside begin to turn pink with blood. And so this was around four o'clock in the afternoon and I brought it to the attention of the doctors and the nurses at Cedars. And they come in, they examine Kira, they examine her physically, they take her vitals, they do an ultrasound, but very importantly, they order a CT scan to be performed stat. When the results from those initial tests come back, they're not good. Kara's blood levels are abnormal, and the ultrasound shows fluid filling her abdomen. But there's no action from the staff. As Kira's condition continues to deteriorate, she's forced to wait for the next step, the CT scan. Six o'clock comes, no CT scan. Seven o'clock, no CT scan. 8 o'clock, still no CT scan, still haven't taken her back to surgery. 10 o'clock comes, no CT scan. 11 o'clock comes, no CT scan. At this point, Kira's pale, shivering uncontrollably and sensitive to touch. In the seven hours since Charles first noticed blood in Kira's catheter, he and his family have been relentlessly advocating for her, asking for help, asking for that CT scan for attention, for anything. 
Were you going crazy, Charles? I can only imagine that you were, uh, you know, I think about Shirley MacLaine in terms of endearment, that you were just furious. I was doing my best to stay calm. In this, in this moment, I have a wife who is clearly um, fighting for her life. I have a newborn baby. I have family members that are all looking and saying, what's going on? We need answers. And Kira's whole time, even her most vulnerable, her thing to me was, baby, just stay calm. In that moment, as much as I wanted to yell and scream and slam my fist on the nurse's station or grab a doctor by the collar, what Kira knew, even her most vulnerable state was that the moment I raise my voice, the moment I become too aggressive as an African-American male, I become seen as a threat. And ultimately, she was concerned that I would be then, that they would call security, and then I'd be removed from the situation. Um, and so even in my most heightened point of anger, I'm doing my best to stay calm and communicate as effectively as I can. And even to the point around 9 o'clock, Katie, I pulled a nurse to the side of Cedars, and I, just, I grabbed her by her hands, and I just said, look. I looked her in her eyes and said, well, I need help. My wife isn't doing good. They're telling us they're going to take her back to surgery. They're telling us that they need to do a CT scan, but nobody's come. They haven't done anything. We need help. And the woman looked me in my eyes and said, sir, your wife just isn't a priority right now. And then she just walked away. That CT scan never comes. And it isn't until after midnight that the staff makes the decision to take Kira back to surgery. At this point, she's extremely weak, but she's conscious and has been since Charles first alerted the staff that something was wrong more than eight hours ago. I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I have all this mix of emotions, but a certain part of me is relieved because they're finally doing something. And, you know, as we're walking down the hall uh, towards the OR, and I'm walking next to her bedside, and I'm holding Kira's hand, she's holding my hand, and she's saying, baby, I'm scared. I can't even really think of many times in the, you know, years I've known this woman, that she's ever uttered those words. And as I'm walking next to her, I'm doing the only thing I know how to do as a husband, which is just try and tell her that maybe everything's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. They wheel her away and finally get to this point where these double doors open and they close behind her. Uh, They take me into a waiting room the exact same waiting room that we were in that afternoon, full of mothers with these humongous bellies and balloons and families with cameras and all this wonderful, beautiful, anxious anticipation to welcome these new lives into the world. And now it's almost one o'clock in the morning and I'm in there. I'm the only person in the room, all by myself. And it is just eerily silent. And the only thing I hear is literally the janitor's vacuum going back and forth. And about 20 minutes go by and the set of double doors open and a set of two residents come walking through the doors. 
And as they get closer to me, I can see that the looks on their face was not good. They said, look, we couldn't be back there any longer without letting you know what happened. Um, when he opened her up, there was a lot of blood and she coded. And then they go on to tell me, situation is critical and they're continuing to work on her. And at that point, it's, you know, Kira's energy, the way I am, the way we are, I was, I'm just a, I'm just an optimist. When you told me that you're continuing to work on her and her situation is critical, that's all I needed to hear because I'm thinking, it's Kira, she's the closest thing that I've ever met to a superhero, she's going to be okay, right? We had a scare, but she's going to be okay, is what I was thinking at that point. And I politely told them, I said, look, thank you for coming out and telling me, but you're not doing anything for me by being out here. I need you to get back in there and bring me my wife back. 45 minutes later, surrounded by Kira's loved ones, Charles gets the unimaginable news. They told me that um, she passed and there was nothing else that they could do to save her. Literally 12 hours earlier, we walked into this hospital with a woman that not only was in good health, but was in exceptional health. And what you're telling me, it's not computing. This doesn't make sense. How can this happen? What did happen is that Kira's bladder was nicked during her C-section. And for nearly 10 hours, from incision to returning to the OR, Kira bled to death. When they opened her up, they found three and a half liters of blood in her abdomen. And her heart had given out. That was the last time I saw my wife alive. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics, in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. On April 13, 2016, Kira Johnson became one of the approximately 900 women who die every year from pregnancy and childbirth-related causes. To understand how we got to Kira, we have to go back to the 1980s. For much of the 20th century, the U.S. enjoyed decades of essentially an uninterrupted decline in its maternal mortality rate. But then in the 1980s, that rate started to tick back up. We thought maternal mortality was essentially solved. Yes, we could um, make improvements. We could bring down by a few deaths, but I had no idea that actually deaths were increasing. That's Dr. Deborah Bingham, founder and executive director for the Institute for Perinatal Quality Improvement and associate professor at the University of Maryland. Deborah has also been working as a perinatal nurse, bedside, in administration, and in public health since 1978. By the 2000s, she was the director of nursing for two hospitals in New York City. We only had one death in like a five-year period, so we, I didn't have any data to tell me otherwise. I had no personal experiences to say this is a problem. I didn't think this was a crisis. But Deborah soon found out it was. In 2006, she was working on her doctorate when she accepted a position in California to form the state's first maternal quality care collaborative, an initiative to improve maternal outcomes. During the fall of 2006, she was pulled into a private meeting with leaders from the California Department of Health. In this private meeting, uh, we we were shown um, that rates of maternal death had been rising in California. And they didn't know why, nor did we. It was shocking. We knew our rates, um, even in the 1990s, were still higher than other countries. So uh, we, not significantly higher, but slightly higher than other developed countries. So um, I should say I knew that. I I knew that our rates of um, maternal deaths in the United States were a little higher than other developed countries. So to even have any increase was just, is, is very shocking. I thought we were getting better, not worse. And I still remember the room I was in and how that felt to just like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And is Cal- and I didn't know at that time whether that was just unique to California or was that a, a issue for the entire country. The issue was not unique to California. It was a national trend that would only continue to rise. In 1987, the maternal mortality rate was 7.2, meaning for every 100,000 live births, about seven women died. Today, that rate has more than doubled to 17.4. Now, to really understand why more mothers are dying today than they were 30 years ago, Deborah says you have to look at what's changed in the medical industry. You can't ignore the fact that we've had a 60, nearly a 60% increase in cesarean births, 
Now uh, about one third of all women give birth surgically, and then there's fewer women having vaginal births after cesarean, and so there's more repeat C-sections, which add more risks um, to have the same scar open multiple times leads to all kinds of potential complications. Another thing that has changed over the last 30 years, more women are being admitted earlier in labor. And what that means then is that in the United States, we don't have a lot of hospitals don't have like labor lounges or places where women can keep moving around. So they're often put in bed and um, don't have freedom of movement in the early stages of labor, where in the past we used to help women um, have confidence, go home, walk around at home. Um, and come back several hours later, or maybe even their labor would stop, which now they're being admitted. And once they're admitted, then all this whole, what's called a cascade of interventions happen, which then lead them down a path that could have been avoided previously. You can think of it as a path of interventions that could start with something like medication to induce labor and then end with an emergency C-section. Interventions aren't necessarily dangerous, but each one has the potential to at least introduce risk to the mother. I am a high-risk perinatal nurse, um, meaning that I take care of, uh, over many years, I've taken care of very, very sick women with very serious medical conditions. So I'm not opposed in any way to using induction agents or interventions, medical interventions I personally have helped intervene in many ways when needed, but as I've learned, we should not intervene for the heck of it. Deborah says there's one final element that's worth noting here when we're talking about this increase in the maternal mortality rate over the last 30 years. We started counting better, so we need to acknowledge that some of this increase is due to better counting, which is a good thing because every death deserves to be counted and needs to be counted so we can learn from all, all of the deaths. It's a way to honor the women who died. It's a way to honor the teams who tried to save their lives. But changes in the medical system still don't give us the full picture. There are other forces, major structural issues that cause between 700 and 900 women to die every year. A really major problem and, and cause is the focus on babies and fetuses rather than mothers. It's a problem that's been developing over five decades. Nina Martin is an investigative reporter at ProPublica. She spent her career reporting on women's health. In 2017, Nina, along with the team at ProPublica and her partners at NPR, released a massive investigative report on the maternal mortality crisis. It was called the Lost Mothers Project, and it would go on to win a Peabody Award. Women used to die, you know, hundreds of thousands of women used to die a, probably a year in the turn of the 20th century um, from pregnancy and childbirth complications. And there was enormous progress over uh, many, many decades to to bring those numbers down. And then um, somewhere around the 50s and the 60s, um, the numbers got to be good enough where people started taking the eye off. They're, they're, you know, started really thinking about it differently. Before the 1960s, the fetus was essentially inaccessible to doctors. They literally couldn't examine it. 
so care had to focus on the mother. But then technological advancements and new techniques like testing amniotic fluid and sonogram imaging made it possible for doctors to monitor the fetus in utero. With the fetus now a patient, the next few decades saw a pronounced shift of care and attention away from the mother. Today, Nina Martin says it's clear where the priorities are. You know, think about smoking and the, and and sort of some of the the messaging around smoking during pregnancy. It's not about the fact that smoking is really bad for moms. It's about smoking for the babies. Think about when you're giving birth. You go in and you get hooked up to monitors and everything, and the monitor is mostly there to check the fetal heart rate and to make sure that the baby signs are okay. And if the baby signs aren't okay, then it's, you know, rush, rush, rush in to get the C-section. Mom's signs are monitored at a much lesser rate. So much of the attention in the maternity ward after mom gives birth is around feeding the baby, taking care of the baby. What do you do? Do you know how are you, do you have the the car seat, <laughs> you know, all of that. It's not about, well, who's going to take care of you when you go home and do you know warning signs and everything. We just kind of kick her home with the baby and don't pay any attention to her. I mean, it's just really shocking. But there's still another structural issue putting so many American mothers at risk. We'll explore that right after this. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. 
Listen to Woke App Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When Kira Johnson died in April of 2016, the cause of death would be listed as hemorrhage shock. But the truth is much more complicated. What happened to Kira was not just a medical tragedy, it was a medical catastrophe. Everything that could have went wrong, in fact, did. So not only did that doctor fail Kira, but the hospital and their policies and procedures failed her. Let's talk about the role race might have played. Do you believe that it did? Do you believe that you were, you and Kira were dismissed or not treated seriously because of uh, because of your skin color? Absolutely. And the reality of the situation is this, is that what is clear about what happened on April 12th of 2016 at Cedars-Sinai is that the staff and the doctors and the nurses that were responsible for Kira's life failed to see Kira in the same way that they would see their daughter or their mother, or their wives. I thought that what happened to Kira was an isolated incident. I thought that a woman who is in exceptional health, who has access to care, who does all the things right, walking into a hospital like Cedars-Sinai in exceptional health and not walking out to raise her boys, I thought that it was an anomaly. I thought this is something that doesn't happen in 2016 in our country. But it does happen. And of that 900 or so women who die every year, the vast majority are black. Black women are more likely to die during pregnancy, three to four times more likely to die during pregnancy than white women. Monica Rose McLemore is an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. She has dedicated her entire career to reproductive health and justice. So when you think about that that group of between 700 and 900, you know, maternal deaths in the United States, you can argue that, you know, three to 600 of them potentially could be black and brown women. And so that disparity or that difference is actually huge. And that's when you control for education, income status, um, Uh, insurance-type place of care, that risk is equally shared by Black women, regardless. If you ask Monica what's causing such a disparity, what's killing so many Black women like Kira Johnson, she agrees with Charles. It's racism, pure and simple. The truth of the matter is, is that, you know, Black death during pregnancy, in my opinion, is a canary in a coal mine. It tells us where our priorities are. It tells us, you know, that that again, you know, we don't listen to and or believe black women, whether it's about pain or whether it's about pregnancy related symptoms, contractions, whatever. We, we don't value black women. It's because our lives aren't worth saving to some people. And so, you know, to say that as a black woman is a really hard thing. But that that's what my gut tells me. That's what my lived experience tells me. Every time I use the word racism, people always go to the you know, interpersonal level. I am calling you a bad person and therefore you're a racist. That's not what I'm talking about. I actually think most people actually inherently are trying to do as well as they can do with what they have. And when you know better, you should do better. 
But the truth of the matter is structural racism is a different beast altogether um, because it's really about institutions, policies and structures that actually privilege one group over another based on on race or ethnicity. We know that there is an overrepresentation of, of, of black people in poverty. And again, that's a structural racism problem. When you think back to things like, you know, redlining where, you know, people were denied mortgages or given high risk mortgages. Like it is a structural reason why black people are overrepresented in being poor. I think it also shows up in terms of the differential uh, treatment that people receive based on insurance status. Why are we giving people different care, you know, when clinical guidelines are standard based on who's paying for it? Back in hospitals, systematic racism also shows up in the actual makeup of who is overwhelmingly caring for black mothers. We have not had enough courage in diversifying our healthcare workforce. The fact that, you know, I believe 1% of physicians in the United States are, are black Americans, and I don't think nursing is much better. Um, we need to diversify our healthcare workforce. A structural problem is if we don't believe that people of color and black people in particular have the, the aptitude or capacity to be able to care for communities that we come from, live and work and serve. Um, I think that's just like a really, really racist thing to think at both an individual level and at a structural level. We can see the effects of institutional racism play out right now with the coronavirus pandemic. While anyone can get COVID-19, racial data shows that more Black Americans are contracting and dying from COVID than whites. One analysis showed that in Chicago, Black residents so far make up 70% of the deaths there, yet they account for only 29% of the city's population. In New York City, the epicenter of the pandemic, COVID is hitting Black and brown neighborhoods the hardest, like in Jackson Heights, Queens which is the most ethnically diverse neighborhood in the country. It's a very underserved community. And the community right now uh, is being hit very, very hard by the COVID epidemic. You may recognize Dr. Tracy Bone Hemmerdinger from last week's episode. She's the chief of obstetrics at the Elmhurst Hospital Center. The population that we generally see at Elmhurst is a mixed community of new immigrants. We see all different ethnic backgrounds. The number one language spoken is Spanish, uh, followed, I think, very closely by Bengali. And I think that a lot of the patients that we see fall into the category of people who can't social distance because they live with large numbers of people in their homes, people who are responsible for caring for not only many children, but also their parents and their extended family, uh, and, and people whose jobs are either domestic workers or, you know, people whose jobs and livelihood may be cut off completely and not have any access to their regular daily needs. And so I think that that puts them at significant risk for any illness. Before COVID-19 hit, Elmers was running programs in partnership with the Maternal Hospital Quality Improvement Network, a part of a citywide plan to reduce maternal deaths and life-threatening complications among women of color. There are other initiatives as well, in California, for example, a bill that passed last year requires implicit bias training for all healthcare workers. But Monica McElmore says it's just a start to really address something so widespread, prevalent and daunting as institutional racism. You have to begin by making things better for those who have it the worst. If you're centering the people who are most vulnerable, everybody's care should actually get better because then those innovations should be translated 
for everybody. But a lot of people don't believe that, that if you center the people who, who are experiencing the greatest amount of burden, they, they think they're losing something. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. If we are really, really like making things better for the people who have it worse, everybody should, should actually experience an improvement in their care. In industrialized nations, our maternal death rate is one of the highest for high-income countries. We can do better. It doesn't have to be like this. Tomorrow, on a special episode of Next Question, part two of our look at America's maternal mortality crisis. Don't worry your little head about it because you're fine now and your baby's fine and go home and live your life and be happy that everything's okay. And so her experience was completely erased. Why maternal deaths are only the tip of the iceberg. Being a professional athlete, I just thought that will never happen to me. An intimate conversation with Olympian Allison Felix and the courageous people who are working to save American mothers. That's tomorrow on Next Question. To understand how the coronavirus is affecting pregnant women, check out last week's episode called How Do You Have a Baby During a Pandemic on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartRadio and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are Katie Couric, Courtney Litz, and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen. Our show producer is Beth Ann Macaluso. The associate producers are Emily Pinto and Derek Clements. Editing by Derek Clements, Dylan Fagan, and Lowell Berlanti. Mixing by Dylan Fagan. Our researcher is Gabriel Luzer. For more information on today's episode, go to katiecouric.com and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at katiecouric. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello! Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. 
Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love at First Listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 